Good morning again. If you're in person or you're joining us virtually on YouTube, we're really thankful that you're here to join us in worship. Um, new to North Cross, physically, virtually, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me, Sid at North Cross Church, or the church in general, info at northcrosschurch.com. Um, also, there's a welcome table out there. Feel free to grab a mug, sign up if you'd like to hear from us. We'd love to, love to be able to tell you what's going on in our, the life of the church. Uh, those of you who are here again, we're really glad that uh, we get to be together, especially this time of year. Uh, it's a really wonderful time to gather as a church. And to remember um, why we're doing all of the things that we're doing to our houses and all the things that we're doing, uh, the list that we're trying to check twice uh, for each other. So anyway, um, in December, in anticipation of Christmas, the historical and global church uh, is celebrating this season called Advent. And Advent is a season of waiting, and it's really a posture of watching. We're to remember and to rehearse the wait for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That first Christmas where Jesus Christ was born as a baby, the Lamb of God. And we're together longing for Jesus to come again with full power and full glory and justice and peace as the Lion of Judah. For Advent and Christmas this year, we're looking at the Gospel of Luke, and we're looking at chapters 1 and 2, and we're, we're particularly looking at these personal encounters that different individuals have with the message of God and the messenger of God, in particular Gabriel, the angel. And then their and our need to sing through what it means to encounter the living God. What does it mean to hear from him or to have even a supernatural encounter like an angel? And so we're kind of talking about how do you process that as well. And particularly this morning, we're going to look at the way that Mary sings her response to God's message that she will be the mother of God. She will be the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so would you pray with me and for our time together in God's words to us this morning? <clears throat> Father, I'd imagine that if we took a poll of every person's heart in this room or even online, it would be uh, a different um, warmth and coldness scale from one to a hundred about life, about this season, about you. Um, I'd imagine that so many of us are in such different pages, but I'm thankful that you're in control, that you're aware and that you're at work. And Lord, it is hard sometimes to believe that, but I pray even through your word that you would reassure us that you've come, that you're coming again, that you won't leave your children, that you're not an abandoner, that you're not a God who's cruel and unusual. You're a God who is kind, kind to the point of being unusual because we don't understand what that even means in most of our relationships. And Father, I pray that you would tease out what we've experienced in others. And would you meet us in your word today? And would you change our hearts by your word? Would you help us to see the goodness of the season with a capital G? And would you help us to know you, the living God? And would you change our song that we sing and our hearts and minds as a result? We ask this in your son's name. Amen. So we turn to our passage. 
And as I'm turning there, and maybe you're turning there, uh, let me tell you a story that someone recently told me. I won't name names because I didn't get permission for it, but someone was trying out for a dancing part in a school performance, and the casting director watched this person dance, the dance that they had prepared, um, and then the casting directors did something that was totally unexpected. They asked this person to sing a solo for them, a cappella, on the spot, with no warning or time to prepare. I heard that, and I felt my own stomach just drop on the spot, thinking about what that must have felt like. Can you imagine what that felt like? Um, imagine the kind of potential shame and embarrassment. It's just like flooring. It feels like the, the floor has just dropped out, <laughs> and there we are. Uh, and, and maybe for me in particular, because if you ever sat near me in church, or maybe my mic hasn't been muted by myself and the sound team, uh, you've heard me sing, and that alone is a scary uh, uh, floor-dropping moment. And really, that's uh, because... I, um, I say this line over and over again, and maybe it's just a soft pastor joke, I don't know. But um, when I say to, when I used to visit churches and preach, I used to say, yes, my singing glorifies God, but I'm not sure it edifies the people. Um, and, that's, and what I meant is that my voice, my singing is not strong. And so that's, that story was shocking. And you see, when I imagine singing something in front of some other people, solo on the spot, unrehearsed, I can imagine two really big problems immediately. I would struggle to sing on key with melody or in the tune of the song, but not just like acoustically on key, but emotionally on key as well. And second, I'd struggle to remember the lyrics to the song, even if I was super familiar with it or any song for that matter. And missing the lyrics means missing the song's message or intellectual content. And really, this is what's so amazing about what Mary does spontaneously on the spot, an a cappella solo in our passage this morning. And we don't have a, an audio recording of what the song sounds like, although I kind of wish we did have that. Um, because I think Mary is singing in such a way where she catches the emotional frequency and intellectual content. She's singing what she knows and at the same time singing what she feels about that Christmas message that the Lord God has come as a baby to richly bless individuals and rightly turn this whole world upside down. And that's really what we're going to explore this morning, the message of Christmas in Mary's psalm. The Lord God has come as a baby to richly bless individuals and rightly turn this world upside down. So we can hear the emotional pitch and lyrical depth of Mary's song by asking and answering three questions about Mary's song. We're going to ask these questions to get at what makes Mary want to sing, as well as how we can feel and know Jesus like Mary did in that moment. Because that's really the, the, the hope of this season. And so first, we can ask, who is the main character of Mary's song? And verses 46 through 49 tell us it's God and his magnificence. Second, we're going to ask, what's the main theme of Mary's song? And verses 49 through 53 tell us it's God's might. And the third and finally, we're going to ask, what's the turning point of Mary's song and really the turning point of the whole world? 
and verses 50 through 55 are going to tell us it's God's mercy. So we're going to look at this together in an incredible pastor fashion. I told you a pastor soft joke, and now I'm going to give you a pastor alliteration, three M's, okay? God's magnificence, God's might, and God's mercy in that order. If you want to follow along, there's an outline in your e-bulletin and also maybe projected behind me. Let's begin with verses 46 through 49 and God's magnificence. The end of verse 46 and Mary said, suggests something. It suggests that Mary is uttering her song due to a particular situation in response to something that has just happened. Mary has heard from the angel Gabriel that her well-passed menopause sister Elizabeth is pregnant with a child. And so Mary quickly runs to go visit her and to visit her older sister in her pregnant state. But when Mary enters Elizabeth's house, you can imagine what she's rehearsing in her mind. Like we've all been here at some level probably. She probably has some sort of gift bag with some sort of baby gift in, in tow, right? She's expecting to sort of say the right things and shower her sister, right? With oohs and ahs and questions like, well now, how are you feeling? Right? That's what she comes in. But instead of all of this, instead of the attention getting directed towards Elizabeth and her miraculous pregnancy and John the Baptist in utero, John the Baptist leaps up in Elizabeth's womb and Elizabeth exclaimed with a loud cry, she breaks out into a blessing over Mary, her much younger sister, and now the mother of my Lord by the Holy Spirit in the words of Elizabeth. So Mary is speaking, really singing a response to that unexpected older sister blessing. That she, the runt of the litter, Mary, would be the most blessed of all women. That she would be in on the ground floor of the fulfillment of what was spoken from the Lord. And that's the context, but what's the content? What is Mary singing? Or in the words of the songwriter Michael Card, What sort of song do you sing when an angel has said a new world will be born in you? What sort of song can you possibly sing when impossible prophecies come to your life? What sort of song do you sing? Verses 46 and 47 answer these very complex questions very simply. Mary sings, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. It's important to pause and to consider the what of Mary's song here. What is she saying? What does Mary feel towards God? What is Mary doing about that feeling? How can we begin to do and to feel in the same way as Mary did? Mary's soul is magnifying the Lord. That word magnifies in the Latin translation is magnificat. And that's where we get the word for that we call this song sometimes in choral tradition, the magnificat. But whether it's in the Latin translation or the original Greek that Luke used to write this gospel, the word magnifies actually just lines up with our understanding of magnifies as a word in English. It's as if she's had a spiritual magnifying glass and she is zooming in on God, if that's possible. Her soul is making much of God. She is glorifying him. Him, who's not an item of being in the cosmos, but is the ground of being itself. God, who is not a single article of beauty, 
but the source of all beauty. God, who is not a reason to believe, but reason itself. And as Mary does this, as she glorifies God, zooming in on his character, he's mighty and holy, verse 49. He's merciful, overflowing into memory and into help, verses 50 and 54. He's strong to scatter and to bring down, as well as to gather up and to exalt, verses 50 through 52. As we spend more and more time praying about, meditating on, studying who God is, it's amazing, something Wonderful happens. Something sometimes slowly, sometimes suddenly happens. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. It's amazing. This week, preparing for this sermon, I had several conversations that had this theme. I was struck once again by how much time and how much energy I spend making me life's main character. I obsess over what I say. I obsess over what I don't say. And I obsess over how my comment or silence comes across. I'm anxious over what I did or depressed over what I didn't do. I give myself much too much credit for running this church for ruining relationships, for hogging the praise and the blame. That's what I'm doing, hogging the praise and the blame for my marriage and for my parenting and for my friendships and for my bank statement. Let alone how all the countless pieces of my life and this world are placed together. I'm taking a lot of credit for that in my life. And I'm guessing you do too. Look, I'm not denying the importance of human responsibility or the power of choices, right? That's why I'm going to ask you and me a series of questions about, about how much, for instance, our heartache about our lives working out, or how much about your indigestion, about how your world is going, how much of my anxiety and depression is a problem of who I'm choosing to magnify, When I prepare mentally for the day, right? I'm in my car driving first thing, or maybe I'm just kind of pouring that first cup of coffee. Am I asking, what's God going to do today? Or am I really more realistically asking, what am I going to do with today? When I review my day at night, brushing my teeth in the bathroom, am I primarily focusing on what God did with the day? Or am I primarily focusing with what I did with a day. Can you imagine how much it would actually change us to consciously try to focus differently, to change our focus away from ourselves all the time, and to try and focus at times towards God consciously? Magnifying me all the time is a recipe for pride and despair or both, or either, depending on how my life is going. But there's something about magnifying God and all of his magnificence, about magnifying God and who he is that leads to freedom and leads to rejoicing. I mean, do you remember those sweet times in your life? We've had them, haven't we? 
Maybe you've never had them and maybe you want them. And maybe I'm so glad you're here hearing this because it's so amazing to feel that, to feel tangled up in the great things that God is doing in and through and around you. And we see this truth in verses 48 and 49, don't we? Here, because Mary is focused on who God is and what he's up to, even Mary's view of her own self changes. She's humbled, but she feels looked on with favor. She's blessed. She's taken care of. For who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And this is why she can say that she can actually glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? Because God is in God who is, controls everything, everything, right? From what I say and do to what others think about what I say and do. He's in charge of that. God controls churches. He controls children. He controls jobs. He controls finances, as well as morning stoplights and other drivers, the global coffee supply chain, and the effectiveness of our evening dental hygiene. All of it. Because the God who controls everything, he controls everything for us. For you and for me. It's that personal and it's that big. And so we can rest in the Lord and rejoice that he is our savior. And as he glorifies himself, we're swept up in that glory. And this is why Christians like Mary and you and I can sing. We can sing. Uh, singing is what we do with make, what, that with our hearts kind of filled to overflowing. It's what we do to make our hearts filled overflowing. And that fullness can be so sweet it almost aches, can't it? I mean, it's like that how can it be of God choosing to look upon us with favor to do great things in me and through me in this world? That's just awesome. But if we're honest with ourselves, our hearts are also filled with what feels like an emptiness, Right? We have this aching longing for our circumstances to be different. We don't just ask, how can it be? We ask, how can that be? Or if God is in control, then how come about so much in our world? And so in verses 49 through 53, Mary's song turns that empty, hungry longing for God's might to make this world right our sermon's second main point. So if the beginning of Mary's song identified the main character of life's story as God, beginning with verses 49 and following, we see the main theme of her song. And what's the main theme of her song? A holy longing for God's might to rightly turn what's wrong with this world upside down and right side out. Verses 51 through 53 are clear. Mary is celebrating that in Jesus' birth, there is a new king with an eternal kingdom that has begun a great revolutionary reversal of how this world ordinarily works. God has shown strength with his arm. And in this strength, he has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their heart. God works inside minds and hearts to change the world. He's brought this down, the mighty, from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. 
God works outside of us as well. He works in our societies. He works in our politics to change the world. And finally, according to verse 53, God has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. God works through our hungers to fill us with good and empty us out of evil. As physically as bread and as spiritually as patient endurance. In a musical version of the story of Jesus' birth, Don Chaffer captures the theme of Mary's song really well here. Joseph and Mary are oppressed. True to history, they're poor and they're Jewish under the harsh rule of the Roman Empire and its rich local sympathizers. And Joseph is this just blue-collar guy. He's just trying to stay out of trouble. He's trying to make enough money to make his ends meet and maybe pop the question to Mary with a ring. He just, in most of all, he just wants to keep Mary happy. But maybe that last task is the hardest because Mary, according to this musical, is a revolutionary spirit. And I think we see it in the song. She is a revolutionary spirit about the poor and the marginalized and the minority, all of those statuses. And so she sings to God the song, I want to be delivered. And it goes something like this. I want to be delivered. I want to be set free. Don't make me wait till after I'm gone. If you don't deliver us, let us leave. If you choose another people and you're moving on, just save us all the trouble of trying to believe and let your people go. What does it take to wake you, to see you raise your hand, to hear your justice roll, your thundering command? And you can hear in that song the longing of Mary, right? And her people Israel. And then you can see the way it's answered in her song, the Magnificat, especially in verses 51 through 53. God isn't asleep at the wheel of the universe. He hasn't chosen another people to run with. He's expanded Israel spiritually and geographically to include all the tribes and all the tongues and all the nations, all who, like Mary, hunger to be filled with good things from him. I think if I'm honest... What has been the most discouraging part of the past two years, roughly, of COVID-19 and the pandemic is watching the way that Christians, including me the foremost, have handled our hunger. We're hungry for God. We've always been hungry for God. And as Mary and her time knew well, there's nothing like the anxieties of disease and death, political unrest, family estrangements and friend cutoffs to make us feel the sharp edges of our hunger, our hunger for eternal life, for justice to overflow this world, for the peace of reconciliation. And it's been two years almost of where I have felt and we have felt so much anger and tiredness and hurt. I'm so angry about being angry. I'm so tired about being tired. I'm so hurt about being hurt. But beneath these emotions, what's fueling some of these emotions is actually that I'm hungry with a holy hunger. And I'm convinced that we see the evidence of this sharp longing everywhere in our lives. 
You know, when I was a campus minister, I had several students go down to work with street children in Honduras at an orphanage. several groups of them, and whether they were just there for a week or a summer or for some cases for years, every student I talked to about their experience in Honduras, they would say that the most difficult part was when you went out into the streets and you met with those, those kids, those children who are living in cardboard in alleys or living under bridges to keep dry. And almost to a boy and a girl, because most of them were children, each had their head, when you saw them, leaned over a paper bag or cupped hands because they were huffing glue. When my college students asked the Honduran students, the street children, um, but also even just the missionaries, why these kids sniffed glue, the kids to a person would say this, it's the only thing that makes me not feel hungry. It's the only thing that makes me not feel hungry. So the question becomes, what are you sniffing to take away your spiritual hunger pains? Is it the internet? We are sniffing the internet. (laughs) Pornography, politics, COVID articles, be like me influencers. Maybe we're huffing opinions and predictions about critical race theory or vaccines or Christian nationalism or spiritual abuse, all at such a rate that it kills our hunger for something more, at least temporarily. Or what if we're filling up on, what if what we're filling up on is not angry news or Photoshop people with highly edited lives? What if we're feeding ourselves on something so close to the real thing, but not quite, especially this time of year? We're desperately piling on good things like they're the best thing. Family photo ops, warm, fuzzy feelings, jingle bells and snowmen and reindeers. We're driven to get everything on our child's Christmas list to make this the best Christmas ever (laughs) or to get our own Amazon wish list and own it. You know, whatever Target and Apple tell us life is, especially what Christmas is really actually about. It's really worth rereading Jesus' parable of the wedding banquet. It's really helpful. Because what he's saying there, and it's worth asking ourselves what he's inviting us to, but also about our own excuses for why we don't come. What things do I go to when I feel the hunger or when I hear Jesus calling? I mean, I've asked myself this a lot. What's my purchased field? What's my yoke of oxen? What's a relationship that's getting in the way of me coming to Jesus and feeding on him? Or in the words of verse 53, how do things and even people sometimes send me away empty? But if stocking stuffers and holiday moments with family, let alone internet scrolling, won't satisfy, at least for long, what will satisfy us? What will fully fill my deepest hunger? What will take away the emptiness of feeling again, 
uh, being, feeling again fooled by being fed, but what doesn't satisfy. The answer to these honest questions is our third and final point. God's mercy. It's God's mercy. God's mercy is the turning point of God's song, of Mary's song. God's mercy is the Magnificat's turning point, right? Because the turning point of every single life, God's mercy is what actually fills our deepest hungers, and it is what is changing the world for the better. Verses 54 through 55 tell us how he, God, has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to the fathers to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. What Mary is singing here is this, the baby in my belly. This is God being faithful. Or in the words of Christopher Ash, Christmas is God keeping a promise. Christmas is God keeping a promise. You see, God sends his only begotten son into this world in the womb of Mary to keep his promise to his people that began way back in Genesis with Abraham to bless all the nations through the offspring of Abraham. And that's not just the offspring of Abraham like his son Isaac. It's bigger than that. It's his then distant but now present descendant of Isaac, Jesus, the son of Mary. And how will Jesus bless this planet? (laughs) Through Jesus Christ, the offspring of Abraham, God in his mercy has already begun to enact a plan to deliver oppressed peoples and set the captives free. God's brought himself down, down from his heavenly throne in order to come to earth and inhabit a most humble estate. Not just a human, but a poor and hungry human. And not a snap, he's an adult rabbi on the scene, but gets smaller and then smaller again until he's a single cell, a zygote. In a womb for nine months, a wash in amniotic fluid. In a geographic area the size of Ohio, a wash in every sin and misery this world holds. Fastened to two wooden beams, in the shape of a cross laid in a tomb, covered with a burial cloth, only to rise again from the grave and to sit ascended at the right hand of God the Father, at his throne, to put every power and every principality in heaven and on earth under his Jesus' feet, including our proud thoughts that we don't really need God. And I'm so tired of baby Jesus. God is a baby. Give me a break. You see, world history has shown again and again and again on repeat. Doesn't this feel so old? That mere humans are not merciful enough. We're not mighty enough to rescue ourselves. There is no other savior from this world's injustice, from greed and exploitation and disease and death. Our willpower peters out. Our political solutions get corrupted every time. You see, personal experience has taught us again and again that other people break their promises to us 
and we break our promises to other people. And so we need a God who keeps his word. No matter what, unto death, to bless us full of his spirit, to turn this world right side up. In fact, he's already begun to do that. For our drive to Alabama this season, uh, the day after Christmas, we're going to leave and go. We've already begun. I've talked to the kids, got a survey, and we're going to begin reading the Lord of the Rings as a family. We're going to listen to it in the car. And maybe that's your saying, Hmm, that's precious. The expected Presbyterian pastor move, right? <laughs> Regardless, I've been thinking about this with some excitement to share this story with the rest of my family together. Uh, when I read something this week that reminded me of just why this book has such staying power, not just for Presbyterians, but also for the entire world, for multiple generations. In fact, it created a whole genre called fantasy. And you see, most people think of J.R.R. Tolkien's books turned movies as this sort of epic battle between good and evil, right? And we see this over and over and over again. We think that's what he did so well. Uh, you know, good guys, bad guys. You know, good wizards, bad wizards. Good elves, bad orcs. Whatever it is, right? But it's clear from Tolkien's own letters that isn't how he saw his own books. <laughs> because that isn't how he saw his own world, this world not just Middle Earth. Evil isn't in some of them. <laughs> it's all in all of us. <laughs> and the ring of power is just to show us that anyone is capable of great harm, especially the most strong, and especially the people that think they do the best for everyone else. And so the story of the Lord of the Rings is actually the same story that Mary lived in and that we're living in. God is unstoppably working. In the midst of evil, he's unstoppably working his good. But he's doing it in a strange and oftentimes invisible way. He's exalting the humble, the smallest, the least, the poor, those with little to no standing. And like our Christmas story in Luke this morning, this can be so hard to believe that life, especially life in a pandemic, what strain are number three? We're an Omicron in the Greek alphabet for Pete's sake. That life, this life, it can feel so random, it can feel so pointless, and it feels like evils are just getting stronger all around us and within us. And so the Christmas question becomes this. Am I going to trust in what God says he's doing in Mary's song? Or am I going to trust in myself to control my world? Am I going to trust in what God says he's doing in Mary's song? Or am I going to trust myself to control my world? Really, what's going to win our hearts today? Stuffed, pointless things going wrong? Or God's magnificence? God's might? God's mercy? and our hunger for something more. Christmas reminds us God has come and God will come again. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord.
Would you pray with me again? Father, thank you for this passage and thank you for the opportunity to look at it together. Stir us to you. Help us to come honestly and humbly, but help us to come however we can come. But we need you to draw near us. Meet us more than halfway. (laughs) Meet us before we even begin. You came, but no one expected it. Come again. Spiritually, physically, both and, we don't care. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.